Please open your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. O God, Thou art my God, I seek Thee. My soul thirsts for Thee. My flesh faints for Thee, as in a dry and weary land where no water is. So I have looked upon Thee in the sanctuary, beholding Thy power and glory. Because thy steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise thee. So I will bless thee as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on thy name. My soul is feasted as with marrow and fat. And my mouth praises thee with joyful lips when I think of thee upon my bed. And meditate on thee in the watches of the night. For thou hast been my help. And in the shadow of thy wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to thee. Thy right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be prey for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall glory, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Those of us in leadership at Bethlehem believe that the more sharply you can bring into focus the purpose why this church exists, the more strategically And the more fruitfully and freely you will be able to invest your life in serving that purpose for why we're here. Or to put it another way, if we members cannot verbalize or articulate or get clear in our minds why we exist as a church, it will be very hard for us to work together to accomplish what the church is here to do. And we believe, I think all of us believe, that just as in a body, every finger and toe and eye and ear should function together to accomplish the purpose of the body, and not its own little private purpose, so every member of the church should find itself somehow strategically and tactically invested to accomplish why this church exists here in Minneapolis. Four years ago... The uh, Council of Deacons and the staff put their heads together and drew up a philosophy of ministry and a set of priorities to try to answer the question, why are we here? Why do we exist as a church? What is our purpose in this world? And part of the answer was given in terms of three priorities relating to God and Christians and unbelievers. We stated the answer is something like this. We exist for the purpose of seeing every individual believer in the church growing to maturity in his or her capacity to worship God. Secondly, we exist to see every individual believer growing to maturity 
in the capacities to nurture each other, build each other up in the faith and strengthen each other in our calling. And third, we exist to see every believer growing toward maturity in our boldness and fruitfulness in outreach to unbelievers with the gospel. Very simple. And our priorities haven't changed. We exist to worship God, nurture each other, and evangelize the world. And I preached a series of messages on that. You may remember because we're so convinced that we need to be able to articulate why we exist as a church so that we can know how to fit in with our peculiar gifts and so that we can give an account to those outside who say, what's your church all about? Why do you go to that church? What do they do? What do they stand for? Now, time has passed since those days, four years ago or two years ago for the messages, and there's a powerful law of fallen human nature. And the law simply says, uh, great things blur over time. Every institution faces this, whether it's your business, whether it's an educational institution, a cultural institution, a religious institution. Over time, the vision blurs. It gets hazy. And there has to be a constant or repeated rekindling, clarifying of the vision. Why does our business exist? Why does this school exist? Why does this church exist? So that everybody who's a part of that institution can feel a sense of mission and calling and purpose. We're not just playing games when we go to this place. They're here for an exciting, strategic, eternal purpose. What is it? Now, what I'd like to do over the next three Sundays is just unfold each of those three priorities. And my hope is that at the end of those three Sundays, everybody who has come, member or regular attender or visitor, would be able to put into a few clear, precise sentences why we're here. And have some biblical foundation underneath so that if anybody in your workplace said, uh, Bethlehem, you go to Bethlehem, tell me about it. What, what, are the, what, what What's Bethlehem all about? And you wouldn't stammer for words to say, well, you know, it's a church and it's religious. and But you'd have some some three or four clear sentences ready to come out of your mouth to help them understand. And then as questions came, the sentences could be unpacked. The mission hasn't changed in the last four years, but we've got some new vocabulary. I thought up some new ways to say it. And the reason I think this is important is because new vocabulary to express old purposes helps you catch afresh the, the liveness of the vision. And the second reason I, I like this new vocabulary is because it helps better than the old vocabulary keep God at the center of our three priorities. Here's the way... We're talking these days around the staff and leadership of the church. Bethlehem is a vision of God. And we exist to savor the vision in worship, instill the vision in a fellowshipping, teaching, and nurture, and to spread the vision in evangelism and world missions. Now, the, the advantage of this over the old vocabulary is not only that it's just a little new, but that it puts God not only at the center of the vertical 
priority of worship, but also keeps him at the center of the two horizontal tasks and goals. Namely, he is at the center of our nurturing, loving, fellowshipping, teaching life within the church, and he is at the center of our evangelizing mission purpose outside the church. I don't want us ever to lose sight at Bethlehem that from him and through him and to him is everything. And I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that in him we live and move and have our being. I don't want us to forget 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or worship or work or witness, do everything to the glory of God. So this slight change in vocabulary is simply for the freshness of it, but also because to say that we are a vision of God savored, instilled, and spread keeps that vision right at the center of our total church life. Somebody might ask, what's the vision? And my answer to that is, almost every sermon and every Sunday evening lesson and every star article is in some way intended to refine the vision. And we could, of course, take ten weeks and talk about the vision and then talk about uh, spreading it, savoring it, and instilling it. But I've decided simply to assume a lot in these three messages and just pick some texts, talk about savoring, instilling, and spreading over the next three weeks, and then let those texts bring out some of the features of the vision. And uh, we'll keep working on that for the next 10 or 20 years. Let's turn to Psalm 63. And we're going to let the first eight verses, or some of them, unfold for us priority number one, savoring the vision of God. Savoring the vision of God. Let's begin with the title of the psalm. Do you see the title up there in your Bible? At the beginning it says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Then drop down to verse 9 to see another part of the situation. In verse 9 he speaks of those who seek to destroy my life. Now let's put those two together. He's in the wilderness of Judah, and there are people seeking to destroy his life. Destroy his life. What's the situation? Well, those of us who have read through the Old Testament would probably say, Oh, I know. He's being chased by Saul. And he's in a cave somewhere, and Saul's after him. I don't think that's right. Although that was my first thought. Because in verse 11, there's one more piece of the puzzle added. I think verse 11 pictures David as the king. He's against, he wants to see his enemies put to naught, and then he says, But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall glory, for the mouths of liars shall be stopped. So now the question is, was there a time during the kingship of David when he was being pursued by his enemies in the wilderness? And I know of one at least, and that was during the rebellion of Absalom. 
says very explicitly, in fact, in 2 Samuel 15:23, that Absalom drove him out of the city. He crossed the brook Kidron and wandered in the wilderness. So this wilderness experience, if we're on the right track, is not just an experience of a dry and weary land where no water is, but of a time in his life when his own son is against him. Which is no small crisis. How does he start? O God, thou art my God. Now, I want us to stop right there. This is a tremendously important phrase because it tells us the crucial fact that the man who is seeking, thirsting, and fainting for God is not a man who does not know God. He is not a man who has no relationship with God. The seeking here is not for an unknown God. The very first thing David says is, O God, Thou art my God. And he lays a granite foundation on which he longs for God. And that's very important, I think. What does it mean when he says, Thou art my God? I think that's the deepest statement he could have made about his covenant relation with God. And I get that from going back and reading some of the old covenant promises, like this one from Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you, Abram, and your descendants after you, like David, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. That's covenant talk. That's oath talk and promise talk. When David says, Oh God, thou art my God, he means there's a covenant underneath, a promise, an oath. God has sworn and he's mine. You see, the, the rock beneath the quicksand of David's emotions is his covenant relationship with God. When he says, Oh God, thou art my God. He does not mean I will always rise above the pangs of wilderness miseries. That's just not included in the covenant. He's in the wilderness. What he means is, number one, when I thirst and faint and hunger, it is for you. That's what it means to have you as my God. And secondly, when I hunger for you and faint for you and thirst for you and long for you, you will be there. The rock will rise and meet my floundering feet. That's what it means when he says, Oh God, thou art my God. He lays a granite foundation beneath the quicksand of his wilderness emotions. And affirms it. And my question for you now is. Are you like David in this regard? When you are driven into the wilderness. By the tragic and painful circumstances of your life. And you begin to suck air. In the quicksand of your own emotions. Can you say. 
in all the upheaval within. Oh God, you are my God. And know that underneath the quicksand there is a foundation and in his time it will rise to meet your feet. Can you do that? And the reason I'm spending so long at this point on this little phrase is because everything else in this psalm is founded on this. He is not the seeker of an unknown God. He's not thirsting after an unknown fountain. He's not hungry for an unknown meal. He knows God. And that's why he wants him. And the foundation of this kind of yearning and longing, thirsting and hungering, is a covenant relationship with God. Now, some of you might say, what? That's not my, that's not my vocabulary. I, I think I know what you're talking about, and, but what, tell me, what, what do you mean covenant relationship with God? What is this thing you're talking about? And let me just illustrate with a man who made a covenant relationship with God or accepted the terms of God's covenant relationship with him when he was 19 years old. Jonathan Edwards describes this experience later in his life like this. On January 12, 1723, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God and wrote it down, giving up myself and all that I had to God, to be for the future in no respect my own, to act as one that had no right to himself in any respect and solemnly vowed to take God as my whole portion and felicity, looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were, and his law for the constant rule of my obedience, engaging to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. Now, my question then is, have you at any point in your life made that kind of decisive covenant commitment to God so that you can say today, no matter how you feel, oh God, thou art my God. Let me ask it a different way. Have you ever met Jesus Christ having tracked you down on the road of insurrection and blocked you? Now, I know the answer to that is yes for every person in this room because I know Jesus. You have met him on the road of insurrection at some point in your life. You have met him. And then the question becomes, what was he like as you met him? I'll tell you what he was like. He had in his hand a declaration of amnesty from his father, the king. It was signed in his own blood, the blood of the covenant, it's called. Did you look into his eyes when he held out that amnesty and hear him say, My father, the king, will acquit you of all your insurrection and rebellion. He will forgive all your sins. He will welcome you freely into his kingdom and glory. If you will put down that sword, kneel and swear faith and loyalty to me for the rest of your life. 
That's what I mean by a covenant commitment. Have you done that? So that you, having gotten up off your knees, walking, whether in paradise or in the wilderness, whether the emotions are calm or upheaval, can say, Oh God, Thou art my God. And know that there is a rock beneath your life. The covenant commitment of God to those who swear faith and loyalty to Him. I hope, if not, that you will before I'm done talking today. The foundation is laid. Let's go on. In verses 1 to 4, how does David savor God? And then in verses 5 to 9, how does he savor God? In verses 1 to 4, David savors God by thirsting for God. And in verses 5 to 9, David savors God by feasting on God. In other words, in verses 1 to 4, the vision of God is distant and it is somewhat obscured. And David, therefore, his response to his God is one of thirst, yearning, fainting, longing, hungering. And that is a savoring. And then in verses 5 to 9, God comes. The vision draws near. It becomes clearer. The clouds flee. And he, according to verse 5, is feasting as with marrow and fat. All the fat is picked off the bones. The bones are snapped. And he sucks the marrow out of the middle. He has everything this meal has to offer in God. And he's satisfied. Now... This is so important for you to understand the dynamics of your own redeemed soul. There are two ways to worship and savor God. By fainting for Him and feasting on Him. This is so important because many of us wake up in the wilderness every day. Fainting is the form of worship when God is distant. Feasting is the form of worship when God is near. And both are an honor to Him and a tribute and a glory. Let me make two final observations from the text to help us understand the implications of this for our worship life at Bethlehem. First, even though gratitude to God for his many gifts is an important part of worship, nevertheless, it is not the essence of worship, and we must never define gratitude as the essence of worship. Why? 
because it is possible to be grateful to God for his gifts and have no genuine worship in that gratitude at all. It is possible to love your family and to love your job and to love your health and to love your hobbies and to say thank you to God for them every day and have no love to God but only to his gifts. And if we don't love God, we don't worship God. Now, I'm getting this from verses 1 and 3. In verse 1, how does David express his savoring and worship? Oh God, Thou art my God. I seek Thee, my soul thirsts for. Thee, my flesh faints for. Thee. He is not primarily after God's gifts. He's after God. David had a heart for God. He loved the fellowship of God. Verse 3 makes it even more plain. Because thy steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise thee. What does that mean? Thy love is better than life. It means that it's also better than everything life can offer. Because if your life is taken, everything in life is taken. So what he's saying is, I prefer the love of God to friendship, sexual relations, food, job satisfaction, productivity, books, skateboards, computers, Music, homes, sunsets, fall colors. When David says, your love is better than life and everything life gives, he is not denying that all the beautiful gifts in the world are from God's love. What he's doing is warning us that if our affections fix on the gift... And don't run up the ray of His grace to the giver. We are not worshipers. We are idolaters. And therefore, you can say thanks to God all day long for the things you love in this life. And not please Him or be worshiping Him if there is not in that gratitude a delight in the giver for who he is, in his excellency and glory and power. Don't you think that that is why we cannot do without the wilderness in our lives? What if this world were a paradise? What if your life were all paradise? What would happen? You would so much more easily become addicted to this world you would so much more easily fix on the fruit of those paradisical trees. Isn't this why Jesus said it's hard for the rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven? Why did he say that? Because the more paradise you can make of your life with your money, the harder it's going to be for you to be weaned away from the world. What is the wilderness? This is the wilderness. The wilderness is the way of God to wean his people from the world. 
You can't do without it. We can't survive without the wilderness and the fire. I don't think it came easy for David to go without the world. Not many days hence, the rebellion was crushed. Absalom hung by his hair in the tree with three of Joab's darts through his chest. And David sat in his chamber. Oh, Absalom! Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would to God that I have died for you. My son, my son, Absalom. It wasn't easy to let him go. Finally, I want you to see in closing the importance of corporate worship in the wilderness when it's not there. Verse 2, I'll try to explain what I mean. David says, So I have looked upon thee in the sanctuary, beholding thy power and glory. Now what does this mean? What is this verse doing here? Here he is in the wilderness. There's no sanctuary. There's no temple. There's no crowd. And he remembers the temple. He remembers what it was like to gather with God's people and see the glory of God in corporate worship. And the memory established him. It served him in the wilderness. And that's what it does for us too. That's the meaning and the importance of corporate worship for us. Do you see the word so here at the beginning of verse 2? So I have looked upon thee, or thus I have looked upon thee. What does that mean? It's referring back, isn't it, to the thirsting and the fainting in verse 1. So what is he saying about his experience in the temple? He's saying, when I came into that temple, when I came into the sanctuary, it was like coming into the wilderness. I was so thirsty for you. I was so hungry. I was fainting for you. And that's the way we come to worship many times on Sunday morning. Not many of us come overflowing. Most of us come fainting, not feasting. Thirsting, not bursting, I said in the first service. And that's okay. And it's the memory of what God does in this service for us again and again and again, opening the vistas of heaven to see the glory and power of God that sustains us in the wilderness of our week more often than we realize. And so I hope that you see the importance of worship like he worshiped. And let me close by pointing out several implications for our life together here. When you see that fainting and feasting and thirsting and bursting are the meaning of worship, you become radically God-centered. Worship becomes the centerpiece of your life. Worship becomes intense and earnest. You are no longer playing games in worship anymore. And that's why we at Bethlehem try to do our best to help you worship, to just make an atmosphere in which you can worship. And it means, for example, that we encourage during the prelude that you pray to God and not talk to each other for those seven or eight minutes when you come in here and get ready for worship. 
It means, for example, that we close the doors during those initial acts of worship so that those of you who are here and in this sanctuary will not have to deal with the distractions of motion and talking, but will go after God with all your heart. It means, thirdly, that we have times in the service that are free without direction. There's just organ or silence, praise, meditation, offering. Why? Because we don't want to infringe upon your communion with God at all the points in the service. And finally, there's a flow to the service at the beginning, usually with very little announcement and interruption. Why? Because we don't want to distract. We don't want to attract your attention away from your dealing with God. Now, the problem is that very few of you and I grew up in churches where this kind of God-centered, intense, earnest worship was valued and prized. Therefore, most people come to church with a, an, a passive entertainment mentality. I will sit down and let them do something to me. And the thought that effort should be made to direct the mind's attention and the heart's affection to God is foreign for most people. And that's why we simply must learn to worship the way verse 2 describes the sanctuary worship where he is coming like in the desert and seeing and beholding the glory and the power of God. Well, God help us as we try to grow together at Bethlehem in worship. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me and, and just close in a prayer that God would do that. Would you stand? Even now, Lord, even now, I pray that they are communing with you. Not thinking about the car or traffic or spouse or dinner. Oh, what effort it takes to overcome the fleshly inclinations of our heart. Be pleased, Father, to teach us at Bethlehem the joys and the power of earnest, intense, God-centered worship. Lift our spirits into your presence and sustain us now through the week with what you have shown us of your glory and your power in this service. And all the people said, Amen.